welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Okay, I'll begin with a controversial statement. We should outlaw the traditional scale. What? I thought America has an obesity epidemic. Well, that may be true, but my guest on today's podcast claims that weight is not an accurate measurement of overarching health. And today on the show, I welcome JJ Virgin. JJ is a triple board certified nutrition expert, a New York Times bestselling author, and a fitness OG Hall of Famer. Now, the number that you see on a traditional scale is misleading because you can add muscle and lose fat and see your body weight increase. But of course, that's okay because we should not be focusing solely on body weight. We should be focusing on body composition. Now, last year, I lost, as many of you know, 60 pounds. I went from about 200 to 140. But along with that weight loss, I also lost a tremendous amount of muscle. Well, following JJ's protocols, I've now put on about 20 pounds of mostly muscle, and I'm at a fairly ideal body weight and stronger than I've ever been at 53. So in our conversation, JJ reveals the secrets for how to maintain or lose weight while also gaining muscle. And a lot of this comes down to balancing protein consumption, calorie intake, and resistance training. So here are some of the big ideas that we explore. How to age not gracefully, but powerfully. How much protein we should eat, especially in our first meal of the day. Why getting a certain amount of essential amino acids, like leucine, is essential for muscle protein synthesis. We discuss the role of amino acid supplements and of creatine. I take about five grams every day. And I love this framing that JJ has. We should not be training to be better at training. We should be training to be better at life. And how does that translate in the gym? Okay, but before we dive in, I'm so grateful to those of you who write us reviews on Apple Podcasts that We've created a special offer for you, 30 days of free commune membership. So just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review and then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, preferably a positive one, to receive your free access of 30 days to commune membership. Okay, this was a fascinating conversation full of actionable information. So without further delay, I present to you, JJ Virgin. JJ Virgin, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Wow, what a what a treat. Thrilled to be part of the Commune family, Jeff. Like so excited. Yeah, we have so many uh relationships that that we share. And then it's just a, a joy to connect that that line directly with you. So I know you, you sit atop so many interesting people that that you convene on a on a regular basis. So not only are you just a, an unbelievable uh, mind and repository of information, but you're an incredible connector. Uh, you, your, your name just continues to bubble to the surface in, in almost every other conversation I have. So good to be directly here. Um, 
So you proudly, uh, unabashedly turned 60 last year, I believe, <laughs> and, um, and uh, you're owning it. And um, I believe some nine months uh, prior to uh, your birthday, uh, you made a pact with yourself to go into your seventh decade in the finest form of your life, which for you is quite a challenge because mm -hmm. I, I believe you've always been in, in fine form. But, you, you know, it appears that you've done it. Um, and, you know, we've recently collaborated on a, on a program called Aging Powerfully um, that dives into all of the facets and protocols that you've adopted on this quest. So I, I hope our conversation today can be a little bit of cliff notes and provide sort of a top line roadmap for people looking to really go powerfully into their second half of life. And here we are at the beginning of January. And uh, of course, there's you know no better time to be to be talking about this. So kind of as you jumped off and embarked on this journey, what were some of the key markers and tests uh, that you looked to to assess, you know, where you were with your health and set the coordinates for uh, your health compass? So the first thing I have to do is give a shout out to our mutual buddy, Dr. Mark Hyman, because it, it actually, right, it got inspired by something he said. And we were doing a panel together and he said, he said that people who are, have a positive mindset about aging live seven and a half time years. I always say times. So I'm like, yep, you're 2000, seven and a half <laughs> years longer than those who don't. And I thought, well, there's an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> so what if. What if I approach this whole thing as like, this is the best time of my life. This is going to be, I'm going to be in the best shape of my life. I'm going to be able to do, accomplish more in my life than ever before. Like, I'm just going to get super fired up and excited about this, right? So mm. shout out to Mark on that because that framed all of this. And I bring that up because that's available for anybody, right? Because your mindset's your choice. So I always say, Choose, you know, choose wisely here. Let's choose to be excited about it. So having that as the compass, and I thought, all right, well, you, if I'm going to be in the best shape of my life, I need to know where I'm starting from, just like you alluded to. Now, what's fun about all of this is that my husband goes along with pretty much any wild scheme I can dream up. Not all of them, but 99% of them. So the first thing I knew I needed to do was know my starting point. And so I went to go get a DEXA body scan. Now, here was what's fortunate about this. Most people think of a DEXA, it's dual absorptive X-ray something, something. Anyway, it is what they do to be able to look at your bone mineral density. But at the age of 39, I went and got one of these done. One of my friends in town in Palm Desert had one, and he was doing it for body composition. So mm -hmm. I was fortunate to be able to look at a bone density and, and body composition scan from the age of 39 and compare it directly to the age of 59. Hmm. This is important because for so many people, we this if I'm on a mission for one thing, it is that we abolish the use of a scale and that we only ever use uh, bioimpedance like Tanita or in-body at doctor's offices moving forward and then collaborate, cor cor corroborate them with DEXAs because we've got to know what that weight's made up of. Because someone 
who's age 20 who says, oh, now at age 50, I weigh the same. Well, you may weigh the same, but it's not necessarily the same weight. We've got to know what your weight is made up of. So here I am, 39. Now I'm going to go do my DEXA at 59. And I know I'm going to go get my DEXA. So I actually focused on, I, I did three, like three hard months at the gym where I lifted my weights up a little bit and increased my calories because hmm. I wanted to put on a little muscle. And I bumped my weight up a little bit. I actually gained four pounds. So I went in to get my DEXA at 154. And what was funny about this, because I normally weighed about 100, and I was kind of 147 to 150. My DEXA was exactly the same at age 59 that it was at age 39. My weight was the same. My body fat was the same. And like, to me, I was like, that is such a huge win, right? So I was 13.9% body fat, which is very lean for a woman, but I naturally, I've been as low as 10% body fat. I'm a very lean naturally. I'm I'm a mesomorph super lean. Now here's what's interesting about this. So we know as we age, starting at around the age 30, it gets more so at age 40 and double starting at age 60, we start to lose muscle. Um, they say at age 40, it can be up to 1% a year. You can lose two to 4% of your strength, six to 8% of your power. And I would argue the strength and power are the more problematic, which is why I'm focused on aging powerfully. We want to maintain that power. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go in to do this DEXA. I've got the same muscle mass. My bone density looks great. My husband comes in with me and my husband, if you looked at him, he's, he's the same weight he's always been right? Same weight he was in high school. He had a little a little area in there where he gained a little weight, but got it back down apparently in his like early 30s. But he's always been around the same weight of about, you know, 175 to 180. So he gets his DEXA report and it says 25%. Now, women have about 10 to 15% essential fat, fat we need to have on our body to survive. We are naturally higher body fat than men like a healthy woman, 18 to 25%. Men have about three to 5% essential fat. An athletic male will be like 10 to 18%. And Tim's always been athletic. Now, granted, he wasn't listening to everything I was saying and following everything he was doing about a B, right? Doing about 80%. He was 25% body fat. And uh, which would make him... A skinny fat. You've heard about the sarcopenic yeah. obesity. He wasn't, you know, 30% would have put him there, but he was a skinny fat. And I'm betting that if we'd done a DEXA for him, you know, in his 30s, he would have been more in the 15 to 18% range. So it caught his attention, which was great because it wasn't me saying it, right? <laughs> so then we both did this together. And I bring that up because this is so much more fun to do with a partner whether it's your friend, whether you're hire a coach, but boy, when you have the accountability, it's fantastic, right? So now we're doing this together. And what's exciting is we actually just did, we've been doing DEXAs every six months. And um, Tim went from 25% body fat to 18 to 14 to 10. Wow. He has now dropped, I think it's like, 26 pounds of fat and put on 22 pounds of muscle. Wow. Amazing, huge. And I went from 13.9% body fat. And again, I want to really stress that I'm abnormally lean for a woman. 
like I'm normally lean, like I'm down at 9% body fat. But I will also say that wow. like I'm lifting weights the same or heavier than I was in my 20s and doing power moves and jumps and stuff. So that's what I'm really looking at is let's look at a DEXA. And my goal for you, if you're listening to this, is to go find a DEXA. You can get these, like all over the country, they're doing this now. And looks for, for a DEXA body composition test. They're about a hundred bucks. You'll get your bone mineral density, but that's really a lagging indicator. If you're taking care of your muscles, your bones will be great right? By the time you've got osteopenia, osteoporosis, you've really, like you haven't been putting the stress on your muscles that you need to, because if you have quality muscle, you'll have strong bones. So that you commit to getting a DEXA and getting a DEXA every six months. And then we came home and we have a bioimpedance scale at home that Bluetooth to our phone. We have a tape measure that Bluetooth to our phone so we can take the trends and weigh in every day, but take the trend over a week. Cause if you watch your weight every day, you'll go silently crazy. It's up one day, it's down when you're like, it doesn't correlate to what you're doing at all, right? So, yeah. you know, don't do that. But we'll do a tape measure once a week, um, which I think it's so cool. They now just go straight into your phone. You don't even have to write anything and we'll do the bioimpedance. And we actually travel with that scale too, because it keeps you on the straight and narrow. But that's, that's where I think it's a great starting point because we got to know what that weight is made up of. And then you can start to do other things as well to really test that quality muscle and test your fitness. But step one is the DEXA. Have you done your DEXA? I have not done my DEXA. I'm yet, but not yet, but I, I know exactly <laughs> where to go. I've been doing my research and um, in a way I will say part of my reticence is slightly out of vanity because I want to get myself like in the prime shape to go do it mm. and, and i'm pretty close in terms of where I've, I've been in my life um but i should just you know just throw caution to the wind and go do it you know you're yeah. gonna go do it and i'm gonna yeah. get the report next week there you go okay, okay. i'll go do it i'll go do it done um <laughs> so i think the, the the point that you're making is really important in terms of outlawing the traditional scale right because it, the traditional scale doesn't really provide us with a true metric of health because you know what, what you're really more focused on is body recomposition is that is that mm -hmm. right yeah. yes and that's that's a very cool term used in the bodybuilding world and they always just say you couldn't do it you couldn't drop fat and put on muscle at the same time that's actually not true you can you just have to follow very specific parameters but i'll, I'll give you another story just to ex ex illustrate how important this is i had a client I've, I've always done body composition testing. It's just gotten a lot easier. But I had a, a bioimpedance scale. It's a professional scale. It was segmental. And I had a gal come in and she said, I want to lose 10 pounds. Now, I looked at this gal and she was like, her weight was totally in line with where she needed to be. The challenge was she was like, Tim, she was a skinny fat, right? And I'm especially concerned for women who have always tried to stay small because women, it's like women, we in life, we, we don't want to get big. I'm like, get big, get powerful, get strong. Like if not now, when are you going to do that? But mm -hmm. she was like, I, you know, I, and they'll come to me and go, I don't want to lift weights and get bigger. I go, I've been 40 years, I've been weight training with women and I've never had someone get bigger. The only time I had someone get bigger is if they quit the program and sat on the couch and ate ultra processed foods. 
they'll get bigger then. But resistance training, muscles, metabolic spanks, it's gonna hold everything in tighter and support a healthier metabolism. It's also a sugar sponge that is gonna help you take those carbohydrates you eat and give them the place to land that is not making belly fat. Because right. remember carbs and, and fat, they're your fuel macros. So they're, they're gonna be used for energy or they're gonna be stored as fat or those carbs get stored as energy later in your muscles, which is what you want. So here's Vicky. Vicky wants to lose 10 pounds and I'm looking at Vicky and I'm looking at her going, she doesn't need to lose any weight. She just needs to change where, you know, what that weight's made up of. She's a skinny fat. So we work together for a year. She goes from 25% body fat to 18% body fat. She drops two clothing sizes. She looks like an entirely different person. She drops no weight, right? Yeah. She just well, changes what that weight's made up of. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I went just even my own personal experience. I went from I weigh one hundred sixty pounds. I went from basically kind of like a an apple shape to you know more of that traditional like V or you know V yep. shape, but maintain the same body weight. But it was just a complete composition right. change. Yeah. But you gotta if you don't now you'll look in the mirror and go, okay, look at this. But women. We we are we have body dysmorphia, I think, for the most part, like so much of our stuff, especially being trained for so long that we have to be smaller. You know, you look at a lot of the diet books, they're like tiny, small, all my life growing up being six feet tall. And I basically weighed 150 pounds in high school. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're and and going to modeling places because you're six feet tall. You should be a model. They go, you need to lose 30 pounds. I'm like, 30 pounds? I can't like, I would be, I, how could I lose 30 pounds? I mean, I'm 140 now at 9% body fat. I'd be like, how could I do this? You know, but women are just trained that we need to be smaller. So here's Vicky, who now has dropped 10 pounds of fat, put on 10 pounds of muscle. She's, it, it took a year and she's still upset because she wants the scale to read 10 pounds lighter. Mm. I know. So this is the this is what we have to push against and that's why I stress powerful aging because you know it's not just you getting stronger you getting more powerful it's how it's how that translates to your whole life when you do it, right? Mm. It's like take up some space. Personally, I love powerful looking women. Um, I, I married one too, um, and, and she's preternaturally ripped, <laughs> which is sometimes frustrating for me. Um, but, uh, but I think it just, it looks great. And, but of course, how it looks is almost just a byproduct uh, of certain other processes that are just functioning optimally. And I don't want to discount how it looks because sometimes that can actually bridge into more psychological confidence, et cetera, um, that can punctuate your life in all these other different ways, which I think are important. But like, as you mentioned, for example, in my journey to reverse my, my pre-diabetes, where I saw the real big blood sugar regulation jump was when I started to focus on resistance training. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, you know, when you develop muscle, that muscle is essentially a, a glucose or a metabolic sink. And so it is sucking up even without the presence of insulin when it's contracting, 
um, it's sucking up glucose. And that's where I saw like, I, you know, I wear a continuous glucose monitor. That's where I saw, okay, you know, just those peaks and valleys that I used to have turn into these nice, like rolling hills of Georgia um, in my glucose levels. So there's so many, you know, good reasons. I, I just uh, spoke to Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who I'm sure you I probably, love Gabrielle. Yeah. I just I, talked to her yesterday. Yeah, because <laughs> you are like the tip of the spear. And I think she's like right in your wake, you know, follow a lot of the same messaging around protein and muscle centric medicine. And I see you guys as like leading this new movement around how women are thinking about you know, going into the second half of life. It's so fantastic. Right. Remember um, too, not only is sugar is muscle, a sugar sponge. And, you know, we call this a metabolic sink. And I always say sugar sponge because I think people will get that visual of like, you're just sucking that sugar in. But the other cool thing that it is, it's an endocrine organ. It's a hormonal organ that is the first line of defense in prediabetes and diabetes. It is the first place that you can start to become more insulin sensitive. And yeah. here's what's super cool. Let's say that you did, you know, oopsies, or maybe it's your birthday and you want to have a piece of birthday cake. So I always think, you know, we cannot get so crazy about diets that it's, you know, we're, we're like not living. So it's your birthday. You're going to have a little gluten-free birthday cake and you're wearing a continuous glucose monitor and you're, you're starting to see your glucose go up. Just go do some air squats and some push-ups right? Boom. <laughs> now you're going to make that the sugar sponge is activated, but you'll also, because you're more insulin sensitive, you're going to just see that curve. Like you'll have that nice response where blood sugar should come up, you know, 20 to 40 points. It's not spiking. It's coming back down again. You never have that because your body knows how to handle it because you've got your muscle working well. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. My, my readings on my you know, CGM app used to look like the Alps or the Andes. <laughs> and uh, now, like I said, they're more rolling hills, which is where, you know, where they should be. And I, a lot of that had to do with hypertrophy, honestly. Um, and I think it's interesting, you know, the points that you're making around muscle as an endocrine organ, um, because more and more we're understanding now that there's like a, a secretome or like essentially hormones and, and other forms, other molecules that are being secreted by muscles that have all sorts of impact around insulin sensitivity, but also around cognitive health, right? Mm -hmm. so. I know it's, if you start to look at aging and, I, and I'll tell you this, I, have, I loved exercise when I was a little kid and I, I always loved exercise and nutrition. And I started teaching calisthenics in high school. And then I went off to college and I started teaching aerobics and then someone wanted me to come teach aerobics at their house. So I started personal training. As far as I can tell, there was me, Mark Sisson, and Body by Jake. And so I thought, well, I better learn more about this. And I'd run out of classes at UCLA. So I started in biomechanics at Cal State Northridge. Then I went to University of Miami in sports medicine. Then I went over to USC in a PhD in exercise, phys, nutrition, and aging. And I was obsessed with, I like exercise. And I felt like kind of the peasant in the health world, like people didn't recognize exercise as medicine. They really felt like it, it was everything was about cardio. I, by the way, in my grad work, I was the rogue student that did mine on how to develop strength for lifting biomechanics. Right. And I had to find mm -hmm. someone that would sponsor this work because everyone wanted you to do cardio. Everything was cardio, cardio, cardio. And in fact, they even said, do not lift weights until you lose the weight. I mean, what? 
bad information, <laughs> you know, what terrible information to, you know, when you have an insulin resistant person who you could quickly help restore insulin sensitivity to, and you told them not to do that, to just go do, you know, tons of cardio, terrible. Anyway, um, why was I telling you all this, Jeff? There was, a, oh, so I, I, at the time, I actually dropped out of that PhD program to go into another program in nutrition because I felt like exercise didn't really matter that much because all the stuff was around nutrition, nutrition, nutrition. And even back then, we weren't even talking about exercise and um, hormones, which is crazy now. I didn't start studying that till I was working with uh, a doctor who was starting to look at exercise and cortisol and exercise and insulin. But I feel like now everything's kind of turned around again and we're really recognizing exercise as the powerhouse it is. Like if you look at all the hallmarks of aging and you had to pick one tool, you could only have one tool to impact them, exercise would be it, hands down. Mm -hmm. And within exercise, if you could only pick one tool within exercise, I would argue that resistance training would be the best tool because it will still improve your VO2 max right? It will improve that fast twitch muscle fiber, which is the key thing we lose as we age. And, you know, it's going to improve bone density, it's going to improve insulin sensitivity, it's going to improve immune function, it's going to improve BDNF, it's going to improve brain function, it's going to improve your mood, like everything. Mm -hmm. Well, if you th think about it evolutionarily, you know, what did we do as ancient homo sapiens for hundreds of thousands of years? We walked, so like zone two, right? And we lifted mm. things right? <laughs> and moved things. So we have, you know, developed these adaptive mechanisms in relation to our environment. So that's kind of a, sometimes what I go back to when I have questions about like, well, what are the things that I should be doing? I actually kind of look back into, you know, who I call Fedge Onsark, which is just my name spelled backwards, but he's my, you know, distant- Oh, that's you know, very <laughs> funny. My you know what's interesting? <laughs> There's a gal, Dr. Stacy Sims, she's a great researcher, um, exercise physiologist, who looks at, it really is deep in the science for women. And I kind of, I had the opportunity to, to learn from Dr. Lauren Cordain. Like the first time mm. I heard him speak, there were there were 12 of us, I think, in the room. And, I'm, and I, I mean, how do you not go crazy listening to this stuff? It's so fascinating. And I thought at the time, women really would have walked and we would have gathered, We and then we would have had to lift things, yes. Yeah. But men were doing more of the zone two-y type of stuff. And it was interesting because Stacy mm. just pointed out that women do better with HIT resistance training, and the long, slow distance stuff, and where men seem to need more of the zone two. But I look back and I go, how often, you know, you had the messenger that had to run all that way. Well, they weren't a woman, they were a guy. <laughs> That guy was zone twoing all that way, not the woman. <laughs> yeah, fair, that's true. That's, that's actually a very good point. Um, well, let's hover uh, over muscle just for one more second, and then we can kind of go into like what are the techniques for developing more muscle, and you know we can get into some nutrition. Um, but you talk also quite a bit about core metabolic rate and its relationship to hypertrophy. Can you kind of untangle that? for people a little bit of like, why does muscle mass development impact metabolic rate? Well, so let's first look at what is metabolic rate and how can you really know what your metabolic rate is? And there's kind of two ways to do this. Um, 
first thing is, so your metabolic rate is your basal metabolic rate. That's your, I'm sitting, I'm sitting here doing nothing. How many calories would I need at, at rest? Now you can do that doing a breath test. They will predict it from something like a DEXA, but I can tell you doing a DEXA and then doing a breath test, mine was about a hundred calories off, but then you've got your daily energy expenditure. And it's really your total daily energy expenditure. That is that basal metabolic rate plus the thermic effect of food. This gets really interesting, by the way, the thermic effect of food plus mm. activity with activity being two different things. You've got your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. That's not exercise and exercise. Now, I would argue for me, I believe exercise and I, someone actually like blasted me on, I, I mean, I guess you can get blasted on social for like breathing. So it's no surprise, but you know, for me, unless you're deconditioned, walking isn't exercise because the definition of exercise to me is doing more than what your body is used to. So it has to adapt and get stronger. Mm -hmm. So if you are completely sedentary, and walking upstairs or getting out of the chair are a chore, well, then you could get in and out of the chair 10 times. You could walk up the stairs. You could go walking. That would be exercising for a while, but then it wouldn't be, right? You'd get to the point where that's activity. What's interesting about all of this is, you know, your basal metabolic rate is based on your age, your sex, your genetics, your thyroid function, and your body composition. If you have more muscle, you will have a better metabolic rate. Now it's not, we used to think it was like hundreds of, of calories for each muscle, pound of muscle. I haven't seen anything conclusive about exactly how much it is. It looks like it's maybe 10 to 30 calories a day for each pound of muscle, which doesn't sound like much, but it matters. Like if you look at the biggest losers, when they showed that, you know, after the fact, they went back and they gained at least half their weight back because they had... Uh, had created metabolic adaptation, which means their basal metabolic rate was lower than it should have been. It was by 500 calories, meaning we have mm. that basal metabolic rate that we should have based on age, sex, genetics. The modifiable factor there is weight, because if your weight is higher fat, lower muscle, you will have a lower basal metabolic rate. It right. is why it is so mission critical as we, as we, if we want to lose weight, we actually really want to lose fat, hold on to or build muscle. And the average diet, whether it's semaglutide induced or not, by the way, and all mm -hmm. that stuff about diet drugs, I'm like, but that's any diet. Any diet not well constructed will cause you to lose 25 to 35% of those calories from fat-free mass. And if you've got more overall mass to lose, you can afford to lose some of that. You're really looking at holding on to quality muscle. You want to become a filet, not be a ribeye, right? Sure. So that's the first part of your metabolic rate is you've got basal metabolic rate, and then you've got thermic effect of food. And thermic effect of food, how can you modify that? Well, if you simply pulled some of the calories from fat and carbs, carbs you use about 5% of the carbohydrates to expend in the metabolism of the carbs. Fat, it's negligible, it's under a percent. Protein, it's about 25%. So if all you did was take some of the calories from your fuel macros of fat or carbs and move them over to protein and change nothing else, assuming that you're isocaloric and eating what you needed to maintain your weight. If you did that, you'd actually lose weight initially because you created a caloric deficit purely by doing that.
which is wild. Next piece of it is you've got this activity, which is either that non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and you've got exercise. Here's the reality. We need to do exercise to improve our VO2 max, to improve our muscle quality, right? We need to do exercise for those things. And that might be 20 minutes a day, might be 40 minutes a day, but we need to move more, a lot more. Like, you know, and so don't think that you can go exercise 30 minutes a day, sit on your butt 23 hours and, and 30 minutes a day and be cool. And it is where we really have to have a baseline that we track of eight. And, and this is what now all the research has said, because there was all this, you know, hoopla about the 10,000 steps because it was that thing created by the Japanese companies selling pedometers. But it turns out they mm. were fairly close. Like if you look at the bell-shaped curve of how it impacts your health, it's somewhere in the eight to 12,000 steps. It's kind of like that's where you're going to get the biggest bang for your activity buck. Mm. And I think it's just one of those things now that we have so many great wearables that can track to tell us if we're doing that, that we just need to be doing that so that we do park farther away. We do use the, I've got a treadmill right next to me in the standing desk so that I can use that. For me, I have my office upstairs and I was so tempted when I built this office to create a little area where I'd have a fridge and my espresso maker. And I thought, no, you're not either. You have to walk down and come back up and walk down. Don't be that lazy person. (laughs) So, so that activity, I think we discount it, but it can be 10 to 15% or more of your daily energy expenditure. It can be significant. And I think that part of the challenge during the pandemic was, you know, we weren't getting out of the house to do any of the movement that we normally would do. Like, you know, you think about what you typically would do getting out of the house, going to the store, walking to the airport, all the different things that we do to collect steps in your everyday life. So when you look at metabolic rate, it's all of those things together that matter. I think, you know, I looked at like the average basal metabolic rate was about one calorie per minute. Now, like, as you say, there's a lot of different variables that that go into that. But, you know, just sitting around watching Curb Your Enthusiasm or whatever you particularly like to watch, you know, that would mean if you were going to binge that for 24 hours, which yeah. is not necessarily something that I would suggest, but it might be funny. Um, I think, you know, you'd burn somewhere in the 1400 calorie, 1500 calorie range. Um, and, you know, but as you say, there are lots of, you have a lot of agency over where that basal metabolic rate is. And yeah, think if you put a walking treadmill in front of the TV and you were not allowed to watch, like I, I love really dumb romance novels. I'm only, I read them a little bit before bed or spy novels because it's a way Mm -hmm. to turn my brain off. Otherwise, if I help me, if I read like a personal development book or a business book, (laughs) I'll be, so I have to do something to shift myself to go to sleep. So that's what I do. The only other time I'm allowed to read those is if I'm doing in the breaks of hit training upstairs. So I will do my hit training and on the break parts, if I'm on like the, the Stairmaster or the bike, I can read a little bit in between mm. and then I push it again. <laughs> right? I love so, it. you know, but I have to earn it, right? Yeah. Just like, uh, just like you have to earn your carbs. <laughs> yeah. You earn your, your romance novels. Um, 
So, and then, you know, you touched on the thermic effect of food. So I, I think this is a really, uh, a decent bridge into just the nature of protein in general. Um, and, you know, protein obviously has a higher thermic effect as you alluded to. So, you know, for every gram that you eat of protein, it's about four calories. But one gone, just enough poof. But one's, yeah, one basically just, uh, you know, incinerates through the metabolic processes. I'm not sure if that's sort of the ripping off of the nitrogen or the kind of building of the it's, building it's up of the. It's just magic. Yeah. It's the muscle th synthesis or whatever. Here's the bigger part of this. And I'm always looking at, you know, what can we do to create the biggest win? And if someone's trying to lose weight, I know that I want them to hold on to muscle while they lose fat. Yeah. And that means, and as, as we age, if you're 40 plus, you become what's called anabolic resistance, where it's harder for you to trigger muscle protein synthesis, harder for you to build muscle, both through resistance training and through protein. So we actually need more protein than we used to. Plus, we're starting to eat less. And what I hear so often is I can't eat that much protein, right? And I really want someone, uh, we have the protein calculator, but somewhere between 0.7 and one gram per pound of target body weight. And if you're gonna air, air more, air going overboard, you know? Mm -hmm. So what I find with people is they'll say, oh, I can't eat that much. I go, well, here's what I want you to do. The, the biggest way to fail on a weight loss program is to be hungry and have cravings. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> like 100%. you have hungry, you have hunger, yeah. you have cravings, all bets are off, let's be real. So the cool thing with protein is not only is it more thermic than fat, and carbs, but it's also more satiating and satisfying. And I say both of those because both of those matter. So it's going to help you with hunger, but it's also going to help you with cravings. I did this little seven day protein challenge where I just, I like to give people one thing and see what happens. And I only think eat the right amount of protein for your target body weight. And the biggest thing that came out of that, and I didn't, I just did a little questionnaire. I just want to see what would happen. Biggest thing was I'm not hungry and I don't have cravings. I mm. know that if they are saying those things that we can win, right? Yeah. That we've got a long-term win. Plus the research shows that people who eat protein first, I know that if you eat protein first, that we got it in. You know, people will tell right. me, oh, I don't, I can't, I can't eat that. I get too full. Well, don't eat the other stuff first then so that you won't be too full, right? Uh, and uh, people who do that tend to eat less. They, they, there was a great study that showed people who eat protein first make better food choices overall, probably because hmm. they're satiated and satisfied. Right. And do you think that's because it shuts down ghrelin or is it just slow absorbing or is it slow gastric emptying or do you have any insight or into all, that? All, so it's, it's definitely slowing down stomach emptying. Mm -hmm. It definitely takes longer to digest. It also is a natural GLP-1 agonist. Right. So, you know, you hear about these weight loss drugs and what they do. And, and I'm always looking at, all right, well, how, how would we do that naturally? Because it's working with your own body system of creating a GLP-1 agonist working in the gut. Well, exercise does that and protein does that. So cool. Why yeah. don't we do those? You know, yeah. see how far yeah. we can get. Save you know, ourselves, so, save ourselves right. some, you know, save some cash. <laughs> yeah, some cash, some infusion trips, and 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 also have a more enjoyable experience. Um, so I think if I can distill the headline there, it's 
you know, we should be aiming for somewhere between one point or 0.7 to one gram per pound. Um, but don't be afraid if you eat more than that. And it's interesting. I, um, I have a professor who lives nearby me who is, has the only physique and performance lab in the country. And he is doing the majority of his research on women because he, his, his wife is 50. So now he's like, now he's doing research on 50 year old women. I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. And you're a neighbor. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. And so he came over to do a podcast and he said, so how much protein do you eat? And I, I told him, he goes, every time I see a lean woman, every, and he's been now at this, what, 20, 25 years. And he says, every single lean woman I see eats, uh, you know, at least a pound per gram, a gram per pound of body weight, every single mm -hmm. one across the board. It's always that way. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that we know is that when you do that, you actually are going to make sure that you hold on to that fat free mass as you lose body weight. So that when you go into a caloric deficit, you won't fall into that problem that you see so often. And gosh, I remember I had a client, another Vicky client, way back when who she'd so hijacked her metabolism from yo-yo dieting that she got to a point where she'd eat more than 800 to a thousand calories a day and start to gain weight and the mm. only way we could get her back to normal which you can imagine how much she didn't want to do this i was like well we've got to eat <laughs> we're gonna have to gain some before we lose some here which is a really popular thing to do with someone who hires you to lose weight say guess what we get to do here <laughs> yeah. but you know when you've when you think about it a, a really important concept is that you don't lose weight to get healthy and i credit dr diana schwartzbein for this i learned this from her years ago you actually get healthy to lose weight and when we say that you get metabolically mm. healthy to lose weight That's right. and one of the fastest ways to become metabolically healthy is build muscle and you can't build muscle without optimal protein if you're, you know, hey, in your 20s, it's amazing what you can get away with, but, you know, not so 30, 40, 50, 60, like you, the margin of error is gone. And so you've got to have the protein and it's got to be high quality protein so that you have the, because we're eating protein for the amino acids, right? That's right. So do you get a big bolus of it? Um kind of first thing or how do you structure the consumption of protein across the day? Yeah. And there's, boy, there's a lot of literature, both sides on this. So I'm going with what I think makes the most sense based on the current literature and based on what people can do. Cause that's the other part that I'm always looking at is, is if, if we could design the perfect program that no one can do, then it doesn't matter. The tree fell in the forest. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. And so let's think about what's happening. Um, in your body so that we can make the right decision. So ideally we are eating based on our, you know, on the circadian rhythm. I think that is very important. We stop eating minimally two hours before bed. I think three to four hours is better. We're getting ready for bed. We're shutting everything down. Our body is like going cooling down. Now our pancreas is like, Oh, I can relax. I do not have to keep pumping out insulin. This is why and you'll see it if you're wearing a CGM, you'll see it when you're wearing um, an aura ring. If you eat late at night, you will have higher fasting blood sugar because your body couldn't pump out the insulin needed to handle that. And you'll also have a crappy night's sleep. I remember doing this one to my aura ring because I do not eat late at night. Like I just don't do it. And I did. And my aura ring's like, looks like you ate late last night. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that is so <laughs> wild. Um, 
But boy, you want to interfere with your sleep and have higher fasting blood sugar, do that. That's the fast way to do it. So you stop eating, you know, like let's say you finished dinner at seven, went to bed at 10, woke up around six or so, and you gave your body a chance to wake up and gave yourself an hour or two. I think two hours is really the sweet spot. And I don't like the long intermittent fasting in the morning because now you've been in a fasted state. You're catabolic. You are in muscle protein. Your body has muscle protein turnover. It's breaking down. It's building up. It's a, it's a, it's a yin and yang, just like with your bones. And so now you've been in muscle protein breakdown and you want to give yourself that bolus of protein with enough leucine. And this is the research, since you mentioned Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, this is the research that was, she was in the lab with Dr. Donald Lehman, who discovered this leucine trigger somewhere in the 2.5 2 to 3 grams. You want to give yourself that protein to hit that, to basically flip the switch into muscle protein synthesis. And you look at what most people eat for breakfast and you know, they're flipping the switch to like a blood sugar yeah. roller coaster, right? right. Yeah. Or they're skipping breakfast and doing a fasted workout. And this one never made sense to me. And I, I always like to test everything. I make myself my own guinea pig, but it never made sense to me, you know, this idea of a fasted workout, because when you're doing a high intensity exercise routine, whether it's, you know, high intensity cardio, more of that or resistance training, your primary fuel so source should be glucose. You'll still, you know, you're going to go back and forth between energy systems, but glucose for the win, right? Mm -hmm. So why would you fasting would, wouldn't make sense. And what you really want to make sure when you're going in for a workout is that you can work out as hard as possible. So you have to see how that works for you. Some people do better on a fasted. I found that I could work out 30% harder when I had the right fuel on board than I could if I went in fasted. Yeah. So you want to hit that switch so you start that muscle protein synthesis. Now, I think probably the most important meals are the first and the last because now the last you want to, you know, kind of not go into muscle protein breakdown for a while, but you do need to do, like you need to build up, break down. You need to take out the cellular trash, right? Um, but I like to divide it throughout the day and... I think, you know, we don't know at this point, there just was a study that came out that said there was no upper limit on protein, except the study was super flawed. Um, I think probably if we think of, of doing something more in the range, especially for women of 40 to 60 grams, kind of 30 at the lowest, but it has, it depends on how much leucine's in that. Some things are higher quality than others. I've been using essential amino acids and I just saw a study that, that um, actually like, prove this. And I was like, cool. Cause I was doing it and I was like doing it based on what made sense, but I didn't have a study for it where I think you can use some essential amino acids along with what you're doing kind of as an insurance policy. So that just in case you didn't hit the whole three grams of leucine, you'll have it from your essential amino acids. But I would say breakfast and dinner for sure. But I think we're better off, you know, getting a bolus of probably a breakfast, lunch, dinner. Now, if mm -hmm. you are going to compress your feeding window a little bit, um, remember exercise is probably the best way to trigger autophagy. That's one of the reasons we fast. I think that time restricted eating, we should be time restricted eating anywhere from the neighborhood of 12 to 15 hours a day. That still allows you three meals in. Um, but if you do compress it more, I still think we should be eating early, early, not late, late, because that's what our normal circadian rhythm would be, right? It wouldn't be eating at nine o'clock at night. It would be eating more like, you know, 
eight or nine in the morning and finishing at four or five. Yeah. Yeah. This is the interesting Tetris that I've been playing with in my own life, to be honest, is, is how you balance all of these different things. Right. And so, yeah, you, you know, your normal <laughs> cortisol wave is going to come up. That's going to trigger glucose from the liver. Um, you're going to have a normal insulin response, you know, but that's going to take a little bit of time. So you're going to wait in the morning to eat. Then you want to have your bolus of protein, right? When maybe two hours in, so that might be at eight, 8.30 or whenever you wake up, but let's say 8.30. And then, you know, you, but if you're also trying to maintain a time-restricted window, that means sort of, and, and obviously not eat too close to bed, you're maybe then turning off your food supply, you know, 5.30, you know, something 5.30, 6 o'clock. That's not always the most social thing to do, but to right. the degree that you can control your own life, you know, that seems to be kind of this ideal um, window is earlier in the day, having that the feeding window earlier in the day, because I know a lot of people, you know, they do, they skip breakfast and they do like 11 to seven or something like that, which is like a little easier to do probably and more social, but it's probably not hundred percent optimal in terms of how your body is engineered. Right. So, but this is the, the little play. And then it's yeah. this balance between limiting overall caloric intake while also getting enough protein. So you're creating a bulwark against, you know, uh, atro well, you know, muscle atrophy. So there's yeah. some interesting stuff there. Um, number one, I think it's really important for us to think about diets as tools mm -hmm. and, you know, there's fasting, there's time restricted feeding, then there's like intermittent fasting to me, fasting would be like, you know, extended fast, intermittent mm -hmm. fasting might be like these, um, every other day fast or one meal a day. I really think one meal a day is problematic, but then it depends what you're doing it for. Like, you know, I've, I think of Dr. Terry Walls who does every other day um, fasting, but she's doing it for MS and it keeps everything well, right. great, you know? So, so we have to look at the person and go, why, what are the goals you're trying to achieve? What is going to be the best, what are the best tools for that? You know, someone just pinged me and they said, we want to know the best macros ratios. I'm like, uh, well, it totally depends. I think protein, the protein range is pretty absolute, yeah. but how much you have in there, you might find you push it even higher than one. If you're say a physique athlete, really looking to rip down for a, con a, a contest, that's different than the normal human, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so we have to look at diets as tools. It's really important. If we are looking at recomping. And when we say that, we mean losing body fat, building quality muscle. So most of us, as we age, we start to turn into ribeyes. And so we want to drop both visceral adipose tissue. And this is important, you know, when you look at a DEXA, because you'll look at body fat overall, but where you really need to focus and zone in on is where is the fat when you look at the DEXA, because visceral adipose tissue, that fat around the organs is the place that is really dangerous. And that's mm -hmm. what we really want to be working on. And there are specific strategies that help with that um, more than just overall, you know, calorie restriction. But let's say that you want to lose body fat, build muscle. Um, we know to build, to lose body fat, you got to be in caloric restriction. You can burn fat and not lose body fat. 
right? If you're doing a keto diet and in eating more calories than your body needs, you're not going to have to go into body fat stores to do it. You'll just burn the dietary fat that you're eating, which right. is probably not the goal. That's probably not why they did it, right? So, you know, you still have to have caloric restriction. And I think the research, and again, this is coming out of Bill Campbell's lab, that um, physique and performance lab director, what he discovered is that doing something called a diet break strategy actually is really good for recomping, where you will do a caloric deficit for for five days. And in order to really understand how to do a caloric deficit, what you really need to start with is a macro audit mm -hmm. where you use a tracking app. We like chronometer and you just track for a week. And boy, if you just track what you're eating for a week, that changes behavior anyway, just that. But yeah. what you want to do is track to see what, how many calories you eat each day to maintain your weight. That's your true indicator of, of your, you know, your daily metabolic rate more than anything else, right? Then once you have that, you go, okay, five days a week, I'm going to do a 25% caloric restriction. I would argue it's way higher to push easier that you push your protein up more because you'll be more satiated. And two days a week, you're going to eat your, your, your normal way. And when you do that, it is easier for you to hold on to and build muscle. Because most of the time, if you're a bodybuilder and you want to build muscle, you'll do what I did at the beginning when I talked about this at the beginning of the show, where I actually increased my calories by a little bit, 100 to 300 calories a day, not a huge amount. But I did that little caloric surplus to put on some muscle, right? That's, if you're really focusing, if you said my number one goal is to build muscle, I would give you a little caloric surplus and just focus on that. But if you said my number one goal is to lose fat, and hold on to muscle, then I would do more of a caloric deficit mm -hmm. of that. And if it's, you know, if it's b both of them, I'd really do that diet break strategy. Do you pay attention to specific uh, amino acid consumption? Because, you know, obviously when we pick up a some food in the grocery store, it's just going to list the macros in general. So it'll just say X grams of protein. It doesn't obviously talking about leucine, for example. Um, do you pay attention to specific amino acid consumption? Because I, I know that you mentioned that, you, you know, you need a certain amount of leucine, for example, to trigger uh, muscle protein synthesis. So is that something you pay attention to? So it's interesting when you start to look at protein, fats, and carbs, because you could look at carbs and then go, okay, I want to look at carbs. I want to know my fiber. Then in my fiber, I want to know, is it yeah, soluble? soluble? Is it insoluble? <laughs> is it a prebiotic? Is it a like, you know, yeah. and then I want to know with my fat, is it a mono? Is it a poly? Is it a poly? Is it a three? Like, you know, and you could absolutely become a crazy human. What, what will help the most is if we can eat, you know, you, some of the big things I love in nutrition are the most basic, eat local, eat seasonal, eat organic, eat as close to nature as possible, you know, eat a variety of different foods. For protein, it is clear that when you look at overall protein quality, the digestibility of it, the bioavailability of it, that, you know, the balance of amino acids, that animal protein trumps everything. But it's also clear with animal protein that you are what you eat ate. And that what you want to be choosing are, you know, the wild, the pastured, the grass fed finished, and you want to be getting leaner cuts. What I like right. with protein is that it comes with fat. That means you have to make sure because toxins and 
crap storing the fat that you're eating the clean sources of those. So if you're doing animal protein, I am not as concerned. If you are trying to do this from a plant-based perspective, you're going to need to push it higher and you're going to need to use essential amino acids and protein powder. Now, I think essential amino acids actually are probably a really good idea for anyone, say 50, 60 plus, um, especially in the morning, maybe in the morning and evening to cover your bases. They're not mm. going to hurt you. And they're kind of a, a, a amino acid insurance policy, right? So um, I think that makes a lot of sense too. But I would not, if you're getting 30 to 40 grams, and I push even higher and say 60 plus, I'd be saying 40 grams of, of animal protein in at those meals, you're probably going to be okay. And, you know, if you're a 150 pound target body weight, that's 50 grams at each meal, right? Um, and if you need to bump it up some with some protein powder uh, or cover yourself with essential amino acids, do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you carb loading at all prior to a workout to essentially get that extra glucose injection to have that extra 30% or are you just not worried about that too much? I actually, in the morning, I do not... I've never felt great eating very many carbs in the morning. Yeah. I tend to eat more of a protein um, fat hit in the morning. I go to the gym with, and I have creatine on board. So my tissues are saturated with creatine. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't worry about taking creatine before a workout because I, I take it every single day. I'm like crazy about getting creatine in. And especially for women, I think this, I wish this was just in the water. You look at the benefits of creatine. Women have 70 to 80% less tissue saturation of creatine than men do. We'll get a little bit from our diet, but we tend to not eat red, red meat. New, you know, uh, just read a study about um, that was looking at longevity of red meat eaters and people who were consistently eating, eating red meat, having higher longevity. Um, so we'll get a little bit from meat, from fish, but not enough. And we don't make enough. So I think creatine is super important. I go to the gym with an electrolyte and, um, amino acid drink. Mm -hmm. I'm more concerned about having amino acids on board, um, because I know I've got the glycogen in my muscles. Right. I'm really good about getting the carbohydrates in after my workout. That's what I really like for me. I focus after my workout on protein and carbs. I focus before my workout. I do, and this is two hours before I do a little, my usual little fat protein breakfast, which is generally a smoothie. Um, and sometimes I might have a little bit of berries in it, but usually mine's more protein, 40, 50 grams mm -hmm. and um, fat. But afterwards it's berries and protein. Nice. So what are some of the keys to building muscle in the gym for you? So the important thing to distinguish here is that there's, there's three things here. When you think about muscle, there's muscle size, that's hypertrophy. There's muscle strength. And that is how much you could move in one time. Like, you know, if you had to pick one weight up, what's the, from the floor and put it up, push it up over your head, what's the heaviest weight you could do one time? And power is how fast could you do that? And again, we all tend to think of muscle size. How do I build muscle? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And but what we really lose is strength. And what we really, really lose is power, because as we age, we lose our fast twitch muscle fibers. Now we have slow twitch and fast twitch muscle fibers. And we have these ones that are in betweeners that can move change to either one. If we just do a lot of long, slow distance cardio, you know, hear people say, oh, I'm doing Pilates and walking, you will actually preferentially become slower. And mm-hmm. we know in exercise, like when that super slow movement came along, I'm like, uh oh, if you, well, however you train is how you are, like train slow, go slow. So um, when I look at this, the first thing I like to do with people is get them a really good foundation because technique trumps everything. Start mm-hmm. to put down, lay down muscle, get that muscle moving again. And then when we've done that, you know, generally you got about an eight to 12 week of really just laying down that foundation. Then I want to start to move into some strength and some power. So for hypertrophy, for building muscle, what I like to focus on are basically this idea of we're training not to get better at training. We're training to get better at life. Because really what we're looking at is how do we create a body that's built to last? How do we create a body that you know, can do the things that, that you want to be able to do at 70, at 80, at 90. In order for you to do those things you want to be able to do, put the luggage in the overhead rack at the, uh, you know, on the airplane, get the groceries, you know, up off the floor. In order to be able to do those things then in your 90s, you have to train for them now. So how do we use compound movements that are super functional now that will translate into better activities of daily living. So that is why I really like to do things that are multi-joint, you know, not just say a bicep curl or a tricep push down. How do we do things that are multiple joints that are compound movements that pull in your core as much as possible? To me, core work should be the things that you, what you get when you do a squat, a bent of a row, a pull up, a push up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at this, People go, I can never do a pull-up. Well, grip strength, which is one of the great things you do, even if you just did a flexed arm hang, highly correlated, like poor grip strength, lower 25 percentile, highly correlated with all-cause mortality, right? Right. Death of any sort. So when I look at designing a program, I want to start with technique is the most important and functional And so what would that look like? That would look like an air squat, like, you know, basically put down, get yourself over a chair, tap your butt on the chair, stand back up, tap your butt on the chair, stand like, because this is very functional in life. We get out of chairs, right? We get out of cars. Maybe you'll do a dip because you got to push yourself out of the chair, push yourself off the toilet. You know, I love push-ups because I can modify them so easily. I could start someone with a push-up against a wall, then do it against the counter, then do it against the table, then do it, uh, you know, on hands and knees on the floor until you're up on your toes. Um, So I start with functional things like that. Another one I love is a bent over row where you're bent over and kind of in a short stop bent over position and you pick, pick weights up and lift them up because that's very similar to picking stuff up off the floor. People are worried about getting injured at the gym. And the, the whole point of training, whether it's at home or at the gym, is so that you don't get injured in life. You know, because in mm-hmm. a controlled environment yeah. with good form, you're training everything so that you don't have the problems in life. But this is why also, Jeff, we need to incorporate in strength and power. Because if you think about what happens, you know, why does someone break a hip? Well, they couldn't catch themselves fast enough, right? right. Yeah. And when you can't catch yourself fast enough, that's power. 
And so as someone starts to progress and they get the foundation of that muscle hypertrophy and the moves down, then we're going to start to incorporate um, some strength movements. And strength is really what can you do when you're training for strength? Like hypertrophy is anywhere from six to 30 reps, multiple sets, because you're recruiting more and more fibers. You can only build a muscle fiber you recruit and you have to continuously fatigue more of them to pull more in. So that's hypertrophy. Strength is really in the one to five, one to six range of doing something. So, you know, that could be you starting pushups on your toes and you can only do three. Then you would take a break for, you know, two minutes. Then you would do it again and do a couple sets of that. Power would be doing like the jack palance where he was like pushing up and clapping. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's, it's throwing in some speed. It's using a medicine ball and throwing it to, you know, your partner. It's throwing a medicine ball overhead. It's doing wood chops. It's taking a kettlebell and swinging it. It's doing stuff that involves speed. Um, and I would argue those are the most important things that we possibly could do because that's the biggest thing that we lose as we age is speed. In fact, I was, I wish I could remember which podcast this was on that I heard this, that, you know, after the age of 30, like 99% of us never sprint again. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. I, I love that framing of, you know, training for life, not just training for the sake of training. Right. Um, like I find, um, since I've been doing more, I, I do mostly body weight training. So like a lot of pull-ups, a lot of push-ups, a lot of core, um, and uh, just simple things like getting up off the ground. You know, like yeah. two years ago for me, it was like a laborious, onerous kind of thing where I was like propping myself up. And now, you know, I'm just kind of popping up and I'll actually do that as an exercise. I'll, I'll do it from either side. I'll pop up on one side. I'll pop up on the other side. And... Um, and that's and, a power move. And yeah. by the way, like that is a great assessment is you stand cross-legged and sit down and yeah. then stand back up. And it's hard. <laughs> you're, it's, it's so hard. And if you can do it using, you know, every time you touch a body part, you, you take a point off. You start with 10 points. <laughs> yeah. But if you can do it eight points or more, you're good. So that means you can sit down and you cheat with one hand on the way down, maybe step forward with a foot on the way up and you still got, you still were great. Right. Mm -hmm. But that is so hard. So, you know, I love that you're doing that. I, I love the TRX trainer. I think it's one of the greatest things that people can use at home because there's so many things you can do with it and it can help you really get in good form and move in full ranges of motion because yeah. while we lose muscle strength, size, power, balance, and flexibility and stability are, are key here too. So I like to use a hand grip dynamometer to test muscle strength and the DEXA to look at muscle size. There's a simple vertical jump test you can do at home that just involves you, you know, holding a little pencil, marking the wall, and then jumping straight up and seeing how high you can jump and, you know, looking at that norm. And then you could do something so simple as an air squat with a jump and do yeah. 10 of those in a row. You know, and just deepen them. Like, how do you make that harder? Go, go lower. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. I, I got a dynamometer because I think it was like 12 bucks or yeah, something like cheap. that. Yeah. 
and it was it's a great way for anyone just at home you know a dexa is another thing you could go somewhere generally although now they have these mobile dexa vans i, I seen, heard which is they're so, pretty cool so cool um, but the hand grip dynamometer yeah. what's interesting about it is you know it will give you a norm for your age and then you can retest once a month but you can also use it if you if you're getting ready to work out that day and you go kind of just i'm t I, I just i ache today i hurt Actually, you can use the dynamometer to tell if you should train or not. It can tell you if you're overtraining, yeah. it, which I was like, well, how cool is that? 10% lower on your grip strength. It's like, take the day off, go do something else. That's right. Yeah. So on frequency, what are you doing? Are you doing two or three times per week per muscle group or are you not thinking about it that way? I think about it now, I've been really focused on like, how do I put together the perfect exercise prescription? I'm, I'm looking at, I'm gonna have to pull AI into this because yeah. I'm gonna walk you through a way to think about this in algorithm. With the first thing you wanna think about is let's get the eight to 12,000 steps in. So move more. Let's make sure that that is happening, right? Once we've got that, and I love using the hand grip dynamometer as a, as a basic and is again, inexpensive to, to assess. I think another great assessment is a VO2 max test, which if you Google those and we can put some links up, there's like, you know, a simple outdoor test you can do, um, a one minute mile test that will predict a VO2 max. You can go somewhere and do them too, which is painful, but you can do a simple one so that you can see where you're at because that is also a big predictor of, you know, all cause mortality and longevity. So, you know, based on that and the hand grip dynamometer and that vertical jump test, then I'm going to design a program. And to start with, like, here's the thing, if you're out of shape, you will, you will get great results. <laughs> it's the person who's fit that really you have to keep tweaking things. But to begin with, I like to start with thinking of your body as upper body pushing, that's your chest, your shoulders, your upper back upper, and triceps, upper body pulling. Um, that is your lats, your biceps, your upper middle back shoulders, and then hips and thighs, you know, so you've got basically pushing, pulling, and you've got hip and thigh hinging, and you've got your core, but I really focus using our core in all those other things. Yeah. And I want to hit each of those body parts minimally twice a week. Um, ideally, I'd love to see three times a week, but twice a week can do it. So I either have someone doing three days a week of everything, or they would do two days a week, you know, two days push pull, two days of hip and thigh hinging. So really like what's, what program is going to work best for you? Because once we get through that, then I'm going to add in some high intensity interval training on the other days. I think kind of the perfect prescription is um, some resistance training that incorporates in, you know, some strength and power. And I do those as different weeks, some hit training two to three days a week, and then some yoga um, so that you can get up off the floor. Right. Mm -hmm. That's to me that perfect balance of all of these things. Um, but starting just with strength training, I would start minimally two days a week for each body part. Uh, you know, three days a week can work great too. It really depends on your volume for the week. When you look at hypertrophy, it's it has a lot to do with volume. And so, you know, kind of the if you look at the exercise prescription, sort of where the literature is right now is doing like 10 exercises 
per a muscle group will really make a difference. So you can divide that a bunch of different ways, but I would put it together pretty simple of let's say for chest, you do a push up for chest for pushing and either you do a dip or an overhead press. Now I really love overhead presses because they load your spine and your hips, which is great for bone density. And it's also like you push things overhead. So it's, it's pretty normal movement for, um, for your lats, that would be a pull up. You can mimic that with a band and pull it apart. You can mimic it with a TRX machine. Um, but I really love people to get to the point where they can at least start with a flex hang, arm hang, have someone support their knees. They flex their legs and give them some assisted pull ups till they can do some on their own. And I think that should be a huge goal because it increases your grip strength, which is, you know, it's like people don't train for grip strength by squeezing a tennis ball, train for overall strength and your grip strength will improve. And then a bent over row. And that is where you bend over. You can do this with a band. You can do this with free weights. Um, you're bent over with a big supported spine. So you're having to use your back muscles and you're pulling your weights up to your chest, basically to the sides of your chest. And then a squat, super important, such a functional exercise. As you move into power movements, you can start something called a kettlebell swing, sort of, uh, you know, squat mm -hmm. thrust. And then you can also do a deadlift. Again, something that really mimics what we have to do in normal life of picking things up off the floor. Those six exercises would make all the difference. Super mm -hmm. functional, compound movements, cover, have covered everything. And that is where I would start. And what I'd start first with is no weight whatsoever and really working on form mm -hmm. because form will always be the limiter. Like when you look at where, how far you can go with an exercise, it's how far you can go in good form, mm. right? You never push past form. That's where people get injured. Mm. And I would always rather see you air as you're starting and just getting the movement down because when you're first new to something, the movement itself is going to tax your muscles. Like mm -hmm. doing 10 squats over a chair, if you haven't been used to doing it, will tax your muscles, right? That is such a great description. Um, are there any kind of sleeper components to hypertrophy or the development of, of power and strength? And I'm thinking about sleep or rest um, or hydration even. Well, I love that you said sleeper. Ha ha. I was like, oh, what a pun. He's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's well, you think about when you build muscle, you're not building muscle when you are doing the exercise, you're building muscle when you're recovering from the exercise. Mm -hmm. So there's some important things to do and not to do what not to do. Don't go do your exercise training program and then go get into a cold plunge mm. because you will actually block muscle protein synthesis, right? So you've got to let yourself have that inflammatory repair response after the exercise. So that's important. Just yeah. like we talked about giving you the building blocks the amino acids that you need as well. Um, but you want to have good recovery, which is why, you know, in the weight training world, it's always like 48 to 72 hours before you do that exercise again. That's really to let your body have enough time to recover. And so you see how you feel. Like if you do push-ups and if you do that whole routine on a Monday and you get ready to do it on a Wednesday and you're like, ah, you know, I'm sore. Hey, go do a sauna, that would be the time to do a cold plunge, do some foam rolling, you know, look at the things you can do to enhance recovery, 
right? Mm. And that's where, um, you know, making sure you got the creatine on board, the protein on board, but sleep is where we're going to repair. Gabrielle was telling me something yesterday. I don't remember the statistics, but it was something like, you know, 17% lower muscle protein synthesis with poor sleep. Mm. So, you know, we know poor sleep is going to make you insulin resistant immediately, right. but also it's going to lower muscle protein synthesis. So we've got to make sure that we are recovering well, as, as well as work hard, recover hard, right? And that's why when I look at what's important here, I distill it down to three things. It's eat protein first, then we know, make sure we've got the protein amino acids on board. Lift heavy things because we make sure that we're really prioritizing fast twitch muscle fibers and sleep through the night. And when I think of sleep, it's not just sleep. It's also, you know, everything you're doing to improve your heart rate variability. Because one of the other ways that we can tell if you're ready to train again is your heart rate variability. Because mm. if it's, if, if it's, you know, going downhill, you're not recovering well. So meditation, um, foam rolling, you know, a massage sleep, cold plunge, but a cold plunge waiting at least eight hours after a workout. I generally will cold plunge in the morning before the workout, get myself warmed back up again and then go work out. I don't cold plunge after, um, you know, so making sure that you have recovery tools on board. And one of those is, and that's why I like to do electrolytes with training. It, the hydration side of things is crazy. Yeah. Like if you are just mildly dehydrated, you will act, start to um, store more fat. And I learned this from Rick Johnson, who talks about like the role of fructose and alcohol in lowering ATP and creating hunger and making you store fat. And also the role of dehydration, actually um, making your liver break down glycogen, turn it back, you know, take glycogen to glucose to fructose to store fat by being dehydrated. So you do want to make sure you're well hydrated and you also want to make sure that you are um, getting the electrolytes that you need on board, right? Because you need them for muscle contractions. You know, you've got uh, creatine helping with the phosphocreatine system so you can create that fast power, but you also need the, uh, the sodium, the salt in there as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, electrolytes for the win. Yeah, this is one of the huge aha moments in, in the course that um, I was listening to that, that we collaborated on um, about the role of hydration and water in metabolism. This is something I didn't, hadn't put my thumb on in any way, but then of course, as you explained it, um, you know, it, it made more and more sense. Obviously water is key for nutrient delivery, but there also seems to be some kind of thermic effect to it. And, um, and uh and as you point out it's 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 central to um to hypertrophy and, and strength well training satiety too, so, yeah. you know it's important for satiety it's important for detoxification it boosts your metabolic rate but you know i knew all those things and i knew that dehydration could raise cortisol but i never knew the knew the fructose fat storing component of it until right. rick explained it and i'm like oh my gosh you're kidding me yeah so well, and it's, it's an fascinating because it's adaptive, right? Because, you know, we used to eat fructose in the fall in anticipation of kind of winter's fallow. So fructose will essentially, you know, make us more insulin resistant for an adaptive purpose because we want mm -hmm. to store fat at that juncture in the fall because we know that there is a scarcity 
coming around the bend. But of course, now in the modern right. era, no there's no scarcity. <laughs> so, it's really interesting yeah. when you look at this. And I was actually talking to Rick Johnson about this. It was like, you look at this and go, okay, when do we have fruit? We have fruit in the summer. In the summer, we have longer days. We would have slept less which means mm -hmm. we would have been more insulin resistant and we would have had this fructose put us into a perfect fat storing place so that then we go into the winter where we're sleeping more, we become more insulin sensitive. Now we can liberate that fat to have it for energy and to free up water. Yeah, amazing. I mean, we, we when you uh, dissect the, our engineering and how our, how our human design interacted with our environment, it makes perfect sense. Of course, now the way we live, our culture has more or less hijacked our, our biology. And so much of our work is now actually untangling that and finding and refocusing on what is our innate adaptive advantages and realigning with those advantages. So, right. yeah, it's, it's so, it's so interesting. And, um, and we're, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we're alive in such an fascinating time because there is so much research that is emerging and it, it I, I always think about it as agency you know i often dub this period in medicine as the age of agency you know we've started to look at you know neuroplasticity or epigenetics or the microbiome etc all these emerging fields of study in the last 20 years that really point to the end of genetic determinism and give us way, way, way more agency around the, the arc of our own uh, health. And, um, and you're at the tip of that spear. So um, I'm, I love following your work. I also love watching you do pull-ups on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I'm a big, I'm a big pull-ups guy. And uh, like you said, you know, after a meal, just that's my go-to and and now much to my children's chagrin i've installed like three different pull-up bars in our house in different places and so i can't walk by a doorway <laughs> without that's going so funny. and they make fun of me uh, my son actually okay. got stretch marks because he did so many pull-ups oh yeah well what yeah. i get actually sometimes is some um some soreness in my tendons and in, in my around my elbows which i know is a is a form issue so i've got to be careful there um well, you are a repository of knowledge. I know how curious you are and you remain. I mean, I, I was looking at, at your educational history. It is just like wild. You're constantly challenging yourself and, you know, enrolling in classes. And there seems to be no end to the amount that you, you want to learn. And, uh, you know, we are the beneficiaries of that. So, so thank you for your endless curiosity. And I know that, you know, you're involved with so many things from events, you, know, you put together a huge annual event every year and, um, you know, you've, you're an author of many, many books. So I wonder what else are you doing that you're excited to tell people about? <laughs> I am so excited about this next book, like so excited about this next book um, because I want to change the way we think about aging in the United States. And I say that because I think that you look at, you look at, you know, when I think of the blue zones, I think we've missed what the real uh, difference is with the blue zones versus everywhere else. The blue zones, people have purpose. The elders are important. They matter. Mm. And everyone stays active. Like, you know, you look at what happens in the United States 
as people age, they downsize and they move into houses on one level (laughs) and then they become less important unless they're able to babysit. You know, people don't look to them as mentors, as sages, and they, they do less and the less you do, the less you do. And so I think it's time for us to think about the decades of 40 beyond as the most powerful time in our life. We know more, we're smarter, hopefully. And when we're taking great care of ourselves, we can be the most powerful contributors to society and really shift the trajectory of where things are going. So that's what I'm most excited about. Mm. And, you know, when you do this in terms of your health, it's a really, you know, when you think of powerful aging, getting more powerful physically, it's really a metaphor for getting more powerful, you know, overall, right? For really yeah. showing up stronger. Yeah, I love that framing. My friend Chip Conley, you know, um, talks about we used to revere our elders, you know, as these founts of wisdom and people that we would go to, um, you know, by dint of their experience, et cetera. And now we've dubbed them the elderly. So our elders have become the elderly. And as you say, you know, they're often in, you know, track homes and, you know, retirement areas at the best, in the best case scenario, or in many cases in, in nursing homes and considered often the nuisance unless <laughs> they come in handy for babysitting. And that is a, um, I mean, not only, you know, is, is that not a particularly fun w- way to age, but we're also missing out as right. a culture on all of that wisdom and all of that experience that can be so useful to how we engineer our lives. Um, so I, I love the framing of this, you know, yes, we're focused on our physiology, but that is kind of a bridge into having greater involvement um, w- with our elders. I mean, certainly if you look back throughout history, uh, you know, from Confucius to Lao Tzu to Aristotle to Plato, they were always detic- depicted as these kind of elders, right? Older men generally, but not, not exclusively. Um, and, um, and of course we've really, we've really lost that. I think sometimes if we, you know, had to fashion the vision of what God is, he, he looks something like Elon Musk or, or Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> or something now, you know, some yeah, young guy in a hoodie. Um, but I think we, we need to get back to our elders. So I, I appreciate your approach there. Thank you. All right. Well, JJ, I'm so excited for our partnership, for our course. And, you know, when is your book uh, coming out? Is there a date for that at this juncture? It is likely end of February 2025. Great. Okay. Well, I hope we can do a lot more to, uh, to collaborate in advance of that book to make it the biggest release of 2025. Cool. Me too. Amen. Right. Let's do it. All right. Thanks for your time and to be continued. Thank you. Thanks a lot for listening to my conversation with JJ Virgin. If you enjoy this show and would like to receive 30 days of free all access to Commune membership, which includes JJ Virgin's new course, well, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, a glowing one preferably, to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, all free for 30 days. Who wouldn't want that? 
And while you're there, make sure that you're subscribed. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly any old time at jeffgay at onecommune.com with suggestions, comments, criticisms of the constructive ilk. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible. It's such a great team. Okay. Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Cooper Ma, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. You know who you are. That's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I'm here for you. <laughs>